This podcast is brought to you by Wes Lindquist, the author of a new book entitled The Playbook to Managing Your Business by the Numbers. Please listen to podcast number 772, where Wes and Greg speak about the importance of knowing your organization's finances and having a well-developed process for forecasting, budgeting, and projecting cash flow that can make all the difference between you being profitable and losing money. If you want to learn more about Wes Lindquist and his new book, please go to www.thenumbersedge.com. That's thenumbersedge.com, where you can learn how to improve success in business by following the playbook and download a sample of his new book. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast with author Wes Lindquist about his new book, The Playbook to Managing Your Business by the Numbers. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Stephen, as I always do, I thank the listeners. They keep coming back. I've been doing this show now in excess of 13 years, um, almost 800 podcasts. People ask me, how come you still do it? And I do it because of people like you. I love learning, and I hope that all of my listeners are learning as well. And we're on this morning with Stephen Kotler, and Stephen has been on the show four or five other times in a series of books he's done. But today we're going to be speaking about his book called The Future is Faster Than You Think, How Converging Technologies Are Transforming Business, Industries, and Our Lives. And he co-authored this book with Peter Diamandis. So it's Abundance and Boulder, the other books, and you can catch that out on our <clears throat> podcast as well. Good day to you, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm well, Greg. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure always having you on, and I'm going to let the listeners know a little bit about you before we get into it. You never know if they know you or not. So he's a New York Times bestselling author and award-winning journalist and the founder and executive director of the Flow Research Collective. His books include Stealing Fire, Bold, The Rise of Superman, Abundance, A Small Fury Prayer, Tomorrowland, West of Jesus, and The Last Tango in Cyberspace. His work's been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes. He's been translated into more than 40 languages and has appeared in more than 100 publications, including New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Wired, Forbes, and Time. And for my listeners, you can go two places. There is a website for the book itself, and that website is futurefasterbook.com. There you can actually order the book. You can watch some videos that they did. Um, You can look at some testimonials for the book, but it's a great place for you to go. The other thing is you can just go to Stephen's website. He's got his own website, Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R.com. So, Stephen, let's set the tone for the listeners. Um, for this book, because it's your third book in the exploration of how technology can extend the bounds of possibilities and transform the world. And I just want you to give a little background that what led up to this book for the listeners so they know where they are on the page, because some of the listeners may not have read some of your other works. 
So uh, it's a great question, Greg. It's a good place to start. And, and you, you don't need to know any of this to read faster, of course, because essentially uh, it's all recap for you in, in, in the first chapter or so. But the idea when up, we wrote our first decade ago, and abundance examined individuals and small teams who are harnessing accelerating exponential technology to tackle grand global challenges. Water, poverty, energy, scarcity, healthcare problems, and the like. And you know what caught our attention in this one is we were seeing entrepreneurs, lone innovators succeed uh, with problems that, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years earlier, were the sole problems of big, big corporations and, and, and large governments. So that was the book at, that looked at how did that happen? And the reason it happened is because technology has begun accelerating exponentially. And it's worth kind of talking this concept out for a second before it leads us into faster because it's just useful. So technology, uh, Exponential growth in technology is chaotic doubling. So every year and a half or so or year, a piece of technology gets more powerful. Cost stays the same. The classic example is Moore's Law, right? Moore's Law says the number of integrated circuits on a computer chip doubles every 18 months. So every 18 months, your computer gets twice as powerful for the same price. This is amazing, right? It's the, it's the reason we all have a supercomputer in our pocket called a smartphone. But Ray Kurzweil, who's the head of engineering at Google, runs their artificial intelligence department, discovered back in the 1990s that once a technology becomes a digital technology, meaning you can program it in the ones and zeros, computer code jumps on the back of Moore's Law and it begins to accelerate exponentially. So the technologies that are now doing this biotechnology, network sensors, computation, artificial intelligence, robotics, and so forth. There's about 12 of them. Um, the most potent technologies in the world. So abundance so innovators were harnessing these technologies to solve grand global challenges. In bold, which was our follow-up, essentially after abundance came out, one of the things we had mentioned in abundance is that we believe that business can be a force for good. And we, we, we strongly believe that if you want to make a billion dollars, you help a billion people. That every one of these grand global challenges we were up against is a tremendous business. So so many people got excited. They wanted, they went, okay, great, fantastic. How do we do it? And bold, our follow up was the how to. This is how you harness exponential technology in your life, in your company, in your organization. This is what you do. Converge, uh, the, excuse me, um, the Future is Faster Than You Think, which is our third book, is examining a slightly different phenomenon, which is the phenomenon of convergence. So what's happening right now is these kind of formerly independent of exponential technologies are starting to intersect. And they're bashing into one another, they're stacking on top of each other, and they're producing a whole is much greater than the, its parts effect. And the end result is that we're going to see more technological change in the next 10 years than we have over the previous 100. So if you kind of roll back the clock to 1920, fast forward to now and think about all the technological change that's happened, pack that into the next 10 years. So that's what's coming and what we do in the book because we, obviously that much change is going to reinvent 
every single industry on earth. So we go through the 11 largest industries in America and, you know, by extension in the world. Um, this is everything from kind of real estate and finance all the way through entertainment, healthcare, food, et cetera. And we look, okay, all these intersecting technologies are coming together. How are they going to reinvent industry over the next 10 years? And that's what the book is about. Well, that's a great place to actually start this and, and, and to let our listeners know kind of where you're coming. Now, I love how you started this uh, in your chapter on convergence. You tell a fascinating story about flying cars. And I actually have told this to a couple of people. And they went, oh, there's no way I'm getting in a flying car. And oh, Uber. Oh, there's no way they're Uber. getting in a flying car. That's great. That's right. That's right. And Uber's doing this in the Santa Monica Hills right now. Just below the Santa Monica Hills is the 405 freeway where people are spending approximately two and a half weeks. I know also well because I live in Southern California and I know what a nightmare it can be. Can you tell the story, if you would, for the listeners? This is a wonderful way to get them engaged into so, so where this technology is going. Yeah, the, so let's let's talk about flying cars, but let's actually take let's take it one step slightly back, uh, when we and, and talk about the bigger industry of transportation. But we're going to start with flying cars because it's the greatest example of convergence. So, flying cars have been this forever sci-fi idea. They have been around forever. There are oh, over patents on filing the U.S. patent off notable aircraft, which is what they called them in 1911, I think, when we first started patenting them. And we have been dreaming of them forever. And the flying cars are actually here. And when I say the flying cars are here, there are a hundred different car companies, or there, excuse me, there are a hundred different flying car companies. Aerial transportation is the moniker that people are using. There are over a hundred different of these, every major aerospace contractor is involved. In fact, Bell Helicopter recently changed their name just to Bell in reference to the fact that the helicopter is going away and flying cars are coming. Every major car manufacturer is in this space. Toyota, three weeks ago, put $400 million essentially into Joby Aviation, makes a flying car. And then, you know, big name leaders, Larry Page, for a personally financing three different car companies. So the cars are here. Uber plans on having demonstration projects on the streets in Dubai, Dallas, and Los Angeles, as you pointed out, by 2023. And they want to be up and running around 2025. And this is a big deal for transportation. Flying cars will go 150 miles an hour. This is just to qualify for Uber, right? If you want to work for Uber, your flying car go 150 miles an hour, be capable of three hours of continuous flight, carry four passengers plus a pilot. So these are this is a big transportation revolution. And why is it happening? Because of convergence. What allows flying cars to come into existence is converging exponentials. You need artificial intelligence because something has to fly these damn things, right? You can't be piloted by human pilots. They're autonomous. And so you need artificial intelligence. They're also robots. Flying car is essentially, at least a lot of them, drones scaled up to human size. 
On top of that, you need breakthroughs in material science. So you can have the materials you need to build the flying car, light enough for flight, durable enough for distance, et cetera, et cetera. You need 3D printing to print these parts at scale and so forth and so mm -hmm. forth. There's like three or four other convergences that come together in flying cars. This is amazing. But bigger point is it's not the only transportation revolution coming this decade. We have autonomous cars rolling out onto our streets starting this year. Fleet, Uber's fleet, Google's fleet, etc. They're going to start hitting our streets this year, so we'll get autonomous taxi rides. We're also getting hyperloops. These are high-speed maglev trains that can do 750 miles an hour and can go Vegas to Los Angeles in 750 miles an hour, at 750 miles an hour in about 20, 25 minutes. And there are about 25 different Hyperloop projects going on right now. There's Elon Musk's boring company, which is drilling tunnels under cities to build high-speed, essentially, conveyor belts for cars. So we can move that way around. And Elon's really crazy idea, um, but sooner or later, somebody's going to do this, is to repurpose uh, his Starlink satellites, which are, are Starlink rockets, which are today putting up satellites, and tomorrow will be uh, sending people to Mars. You can, these are reused rockets, right? They, they, they take off and they land uh, without blowing up, and so you can use them for terrestrial travel. And they go 17,500 miles an hour, so you can do Shanghai to New York in 39 minutes. And all of these, possibilities are rolling out over the next decade. Maybe Elon's rockets will wait into the 2030s, um, though there are really crazy indicators that say maybe, uh, maybe not, maybe they'll happen faster than we expect. And I can talk about that if you're curious. But this is gonna shift really foundational aspects of society. Just, let's talk about business for half a second, insurance. So if the cars are all autonomous, you don't need car insurance. In fact, Waymo, Google's autonomous car service, when you get into the car, the car automatically insures the passenger. It, it shifts onto the actual owner. So car insurance, individual car insurance, and an entire category of business go away. This also has huge impact on our daily lives. Quick question. If Vegas to Los Angeles is a 20-minute train ride, then how big is the size of the local dating pool? Mm -hmm. People in Manhattan date people in Brooklyn all the time. It's a 20-minute train ride. What about the size of the local school district? Live in Los Angeles, don't like the schools? Well, suddenly a flying car can go 150 miles an hour or a hyperloop can take your kid to Vegas. Interesting questions. And the point on, on, on this last bit is I think the last thing I want to say about this, which is, when we see converging exponentials, the scale of the disruption they produce increases. So individual exponentials tend to disrupt products and services, right? This is Netflix using streaming technology to eat Blockbuster for lunch. That's what typically yeah. happens. Sometimes you get a technology that can start to shake up a market. But with converging exponentials, they reinvent markets, they reinvent institutions, and they reinvent all the systems that support both. Well, and I love all of your examples in the book about that. And um, one of the things you talk about on that, let's talk about Uber for a second. I just want to make this comment was that 
the AI that's in the phone knows how much sleep we're getting the night before. Then when this autonomous car shows up to pick you up, it's already got the uh, the place for you to nap in the back seat because you yeah, didn't get so a yeah, good night's gotta, sleep. You just reinvent the whole thing, <laughs> right? So you can have yeah. a you can you want to you want to work on the way to work. You can have an office like a desk right. in your car. You want right. to sleep? You can sleep. I will tell you though this is not in the book, um, but I, I've been in this discussion a lot. Honestly, is there's a whole group of people who think that autonomous cars are going to revitalize the sex industry because they're basically giant moving brothels if you want them to be. Mm-hmm. And so like the, we're talking about, you know, really strange shifts in culture and society in how we can use our time and how far we can live from where we right? If you've got a bed, a car bed, and it's going to drive itself to work, would you live a lot, little farther afield? get a better home for less price. So real estate gets really impacted. And yeah, well, if we live farther afield and get a better home for less price, right. And we start pushing into national forests and things along those lines, then the environment takes a hit. So it's not all good, but it is vast. And that's the point we're making. Well, and that comment on the brothels, there's a, a company that's making robots about five miles from me in San Marcos, California, that are AI uh, robots and they're most of 90% coming out of the factory are females and these guys are buying them and they have all of the uh, autonomy, I should say, or the anatomy of a real person. It's pretty fascinating. Greg, are you kidding? The world's first robot brothel opened in Houston last week. Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is something else. Well, you know, you speak about so many things in the book, and I want our our listeners to get as much as they can from this interview. And you speak about a large white pipe in Berkeley. That's the coldest corner of the universe where the environment is needed to hold a quibit in superposition. And we're speaking about supercomputing. And everything we're talking about here is about the rate at which computers can go. So an example you cited was that IBM's deep blue computing at 200 milli or 200 million moves per second. Um, and a machine like this will do a trillion, um, uh, moves per second. Speak with the listeners yeah, so if Greg, you would. Let, about yeah, let me, let's talk about computing. what you're talking about a little bit. Well, it's yeah, about the moves that we're making, the chess yeah. moves. Yep. For yep. sure. Of course. We're talking right. about quantum computing. And right. So what's it here? And quantum computing is not yet here. We're close, and you heard Google announced a couple uh, months back that they achieved quantum supremacy, which means there's a quantum machine that can do a calculation that's unperformable by a classic machine, and that is true. And uh, quantum computing does certain things incredibly well, drug discovery, material science, materials discovery. Those things are really low. I do think quantum systems will get there this decade, but here's what's important about the quantum computer in my, I mean, among, you know, first of all, it's a crazy, it's another crazy sci-fi technology like flying cars that is, is here real and going to start hitting the world and impacting the world this decade. So that's crazy, but what really sets it apart, and this is why all of these technologies are going to be so impactful, which is the user-friendly internet. A user is what the experts technology. Suddenly, 
anybody can play, right? The classic example is the web, which until Mark Andreessen designs Mosaic, what becomes the Netscape browser or the user-friendly interface for the internet, there are 26 websites online. And then 1993, he designs the interface, and suddenly, you know, a couple years later, there are a million. That's what a user-friendly interface does. And all of these exponentials, all these exponentials, user-friendly interfaces, and quantum computing, which is the craziest sci-fi technology you could possibly imagine, the story we tell in the book, the cold white pipe you're talking about, belongs to a company called Rigetti Computing in Berkeley, California. This white pipe is their quantum computer. It's literally the coldest spot in the known universe because you have to keep uh, temperatures that cold, cold quantum bits, qubits, in what's called superposition. And don't even, this is just something that allows them to calculate uh, really fast and really well. And we're gonna ignore what superposition is for right now. What's really cool is that Rigetti Computing has a user-friendly interface to the quantum computer. It's a 32-quibit quantum computer, so it's not quite as fast as the one that Google uh, announced quantum supremacy with, but it's still plenty powerful. And anybody can download Forest, which is their basically developer's app for their quantum computer, and run programs on it. You just go to Rigetti.com, download Forest, and you can run programs on their quantum computer, and over 125 million programs have been run. So a lot of people have done this. That's the, one of the other points about all this stuff. This technology is being demonetized. It's getting cheaper, and it's also being democratized. It's going wider. Anybody can use it. So that's another thing that makes this much more impactful. And actually, the world even another reason why the future is faster than you think. Yeah, it's it is. It truly amazing. There's a, a an organization here that's funded by the NIH and and um, also by donations. And DNA testing was about a hundred thousand in the seventies. Now you can do a full strand of DNA testing because it's the La Jolla Institute of Immunology, and they're immunizing for cancer and heart disease. And they've gone a long way, and I actually happen to be heavily involved with them. But it's a fascinating thing that they're doing there. Um, and that whole thing you say about democratizing or bringing the price down, nobody could afford it before. Now anybody can afford to have full DNA testing done uh, and get full information about what's going on. You know, connectivity is a big deal. And, you know, we hear this 5G on TV and you mentioned that there's many competitors vying for the space above our heads. We we know that satellites are being launched on a regular basis and that that, uh, that uh, space above our heads is important. Google's there. Everybody's there. And people are trying to connect faster and faster to everyone in the world. Tell us a little bit about this race and what can we expect kind of on the horizon? So... What you're talking about is, is ubiquitous networks. And let's use this technology. Let me just talk about what it's doing and let's use it to talk about how it's going to impact, uh, say, education, which is, a great, which is great. Um, so right now, there are about 4.2 billion people online in the world. Over the next five years, the other half of the world Four billion more people are about to join the global conversation. They're going to get hooked up to the internet 
for free for the first time. And it's happening because, as you pointed out, networks are going up everywhere, right? We hear 5G uh, sort of floating around. That's, those are, that's taking place at the terrestrial level. And there are 20 different companies competing to put up 5G networks. Next level up in the stratosphere, you've got Google, and they have something called Google Loon, which are balloons that beam down wireless. Those are going up. Above that, you have four or five different orbital satellite constellations, so tens of thousands of satellites in certain cases going up. up. Elon Musk, SpaceX is putting up one. Uh, Jeff Bezos uh, and his company Blue Origin is putting up the Jupiter network. Uh, I believe uh, Apple just announced they're going to get into this. I could be wrong there um, on that one. There's a company called OneWeb. There's a couple. Uh, O3B is the other three billion. That's another company. Um, they're all putting up ubiquitous wireless. So this is amazing. This is another force, by the way, driving us forward. Because if you understand that technological innovation is what's driving us forward, and suddenly you connect four billion new minds to the internet for the first time, and the internet, right, is is, is a full blown encyclopedia information you could ever want than you have so people get trained up a lot quicker this means more genius in the world more genius getting discovered think about how much genius drives innovation forward for a second and you know more and more innovation the rate of change goes up and here's where it gets really cool because what is really interesting is what happens so i think if you're going to talk about kind of what's coming the two best things to talk about are education and healthcare because they're, they're so astounding. And we'll start with, I'll, I'll just talk about education for now, um, partially because uh, both Peter and I are so involved in this particular one. So with ubiquitous networks and a couple of uh, converging edu uh, exp uh, exponentials, you get a really amazing kind of education revolution. So right now, there's about 321 children in the world without access to basic education. They can't even get there are no teachers. We know of to scale up the schools we need or the teachers we need. What do you do? Well, ubiquitous networks give us a, a different way to reach all the students in the world. And these could be students who don't have schools or students, you know, in America or other parts of the world where the schools students have are not great. If you combine networks with virtual reality, well, virtual reality and other exponential technology gives you a way to create a distributed school. Now you don't have to build schools, teachers, you build a virtual school, and you design a curriculum. Mm -hmm. That's a much more solvable task. If you combine the virtual school with an artificial intelligence, now every student's school, every the classes they go to is individually customized for them, for the, their interests. Self-directed learning is the key to accelerate, is one of the keys to accelerated learning. So fantastic, directed AI, whatever you're curious about, we're going to go in this direction. The AI can weave it back into the, the lessons that you need to learn, and, and boom. And, by the way, because it's virtual, um, you also get a lot of learning through doing, right? It's don't just sit and watch a video because there's haptics involved. You can actually explore, do things, right? I learned how to, you know, I was in an aircraft, uh, an Air Force simulation not too long ago, learning how to work on an aircraft carrier being taught by an avatar in VR. It was really cool. Mm -hmm. So that, mm -hmm. that capability is going to come online. And here's the cool bit. 
So at the Flow Research Collective, we study flow, the optimal state of performance. And one of the things that happens in flow, learning is massively accelerated. Studies done by the Department of Defense show that we can learn 240% faster in flow. That's really cool. We're starting to understand the neurobiology of flow. As a result, we're starting to understand that virtual reality is an incredibly useful tool for putting people into flow. At the intersection of all this is my company, the Flurries, very heavily involved in building this. We can build fully distributed schools that are AI individually customized learning that create high flow learning environments for accelerated learning. We're developing this for worker retraining in case technological unemployment becomes an issue. So this will allow us to massively speed up worker retraining. And we're developing this for school students. And by the way, as crazy as all this sounds, I want to emphasize the amount of progress that has already been made. And this isn't my progress, actually. This is my partner, Peter Diamandis, whose company, the X Prize, created what's known as the Global Learning X Prize. It was $10 million, mostly Elon Musk money, and it went to the first team that could create software, Android software, because Android is the most popular tablet in the world, that could take a kid who doesn't have any literacy or uh, and train them up to basic numeracy, reading, writing, and math in 18 months or less. Two teams won the contest last year. Even better, the winning software has been put up on GitHub for free, open source, so anybody can download it. And it's already been translated into hundreds or into dozens of languages. So the first level of this, can we do this? Is software capable of doing it? Like we, all those questions are answered. The only thing that's left is to do this at scale. And that's really what's coming this decade. So ubiquitous networks are where we started. And where we end is an education revolution. And that's, of course, only one impact of ubiquitous networks, but it's a cool one. It's it's certainly a, a most important one because we want people to be educated. Uh, when they are educated, uh, they become less of a challenge on society um, and less welfare we know. and all the other things. You so know, we, we should know. be able to reduce. Yeah. Go ahead. I, you know, Tim, I want to just put, put it out there. That one, I'm very, overpopulation is something that keeps me up at night a little bit um, because I'm, a, I'm passionate about the environment and overpopulation is a, is a serious issue. But the greatest two ways to stem overpopulation, right, in give people better health care um, right. and access to clean water, actually, which is about essentially the same thing, and a little bit of education and access to condoms. Those are the, those, like, that's the magic pill. Women's rights also help. Though you get those things together, it's the best prophylactic ever in the history of the world. Every time well, those things show up in countries, the birth rate goes from eight kids per person to down to three and then, and then less. It's fantastic. Well, what I love about what you just said about education is that they're making the software available so that we can create a community where we're sharing uh, it isn't costing. We're getting great minds from around the world to come and contribute. Uh, you're building community around it. It is a great opportunity. And you make some observations about advancements in sensors. I'm working with a company in La Jolla called Dorsa V uh, that works with sensors to detect uh, m- the movements on the body of people working in factories and how we can improve that and make sure there's less uh, strains and claims. 
What are some of the examples of the sensors being used in our cell phones and other devices, which are accelerating how we collect data and use it for the good of all people? I know the other day my Apple Watch went off when I hit my hand against a uh, I was helping somebody move a sofa and it says, if you're in distress, you know, push this button, you know, we're going to send EMT, which it wasn't. But my point is accelerometers and all these things in these devices are truly helping a lot of people worldwide. So I'm, I'll talk, I'll, I'll speak to this at a couple of different levels. Level one, we are moving into by this year, what people are calling a trillion sensor economy. So on the back end of, of, of these kind of wireless networks that are going everywhere, we're tacking on a trillion sensors. And I mean, think about it. There are about 20 different sensors in your cell phone, right? So your cell phone is one device connected to the network, and it's got about 20 different sensors in it and, and so forth. And everything that can be seen, imaged, mapped, or measured is being seen, imaged, mapped, or measured. And there are massive privacy concerns um, and possibly nothing we can, we can do about it. But the great example is the LIDAR sensor on top of an autonomous vehicle that images 1.4 million data points a second and can read human emotion at 100 feet off your face because it has to. If an autonomous car is driving down the street and there's a person 100 yards down standing looking to cut across the road, the autonomous car needs to know, are they angry, meaning they're likely to kind of be pissed off and dart in front of the car and try to cross the street, or are they really calm so they might let me pass, right? So everything that can be imaged is being imaged. Everything that can be visualized is being visualized. And you're getting down to the centimeter and millimeter range in terms of the imaging. In terms of what we can detect, the, the way I like to talk about this is just a, at, a, at a completely personal level, which is since I started sort of really researching the neurobiology of flow in earnest and, you know, running companies in this space, I have been trying to build a biophysical-based flow detector out of, you know, basically sensors that are easily available. And this was an absolute pipe dream 20 years ago. 10 years ago, it started to become a possibility. Now, I think we're one to two years away. That's how fast this stuff, like we've gone from, you know, a, a device that we, we, we want to measure state change in individuals um, mm-hmm. through a phone or something along those lines with, with right. some add-on peripherals, and we're actually getting remarkably close. That's, that's just insane um, in, terms of, in terms of advancements and what's going on. So sensors um, are obviously, you know, going to massively change the world and, you know, impact every industry you could possibly imagine. Most definitely. And those sensors are in a lot of things. And and I talked earlier about the robot and you mentioned this UR3 is a cobot from a Danish manufacturer called Universal Robots. And it retails for about $23,000, which is the average annual wage for some factory workers. What are we seeing now and going to see with the integration of AI and where all of these robots can go? I just happened to watch that old interview the other day that uh, Tony Robbins did with that 
uh, woman robot. And I was just so fascinated again. I'd seen it before, but every time I watch it, it's like, wow, the, the AI has just gotten so good. Well, the AIs have gotten amazing and the robots have gotten amazing and they're coming together in incredible ways. And I mean, the, you know, the robot example that, that we sort of give in the book is a surgical robot, the star surgical robot. The big deal here is, you know, surgical robots have been around for a while in abundance. We wrote about the Da Vinci robot. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I had hernia surgery and the Da Vinci robot performed the surgery. So widespread in use at this point, everything from like hernia surgery to cardiac surgery. Now, those are relatively, as these things go, easier surgeries. Soft tissue surgery, like you get stabbed in the stomach, is one of the most complicated, difficult surgeries you can have. And we've now got robots who can do that. We've got robots who can execute back surgery. And cool news, this year... Google, actually Alphabet, Google's parent company, has teamed up with Johnson & Johnson. They've got a company called Verb Surgical that is creating democratized surgical robots, essentially cheap, right? So suddenly, medicine, this level of medicine uh, surgery is, uh, is, is going to be radically changing because of the robots. So then they're everywhere, right? Robots are shelf-stocking robots. Um, for Amazon, our, our legendary Walmart is rolling out robots, et cetera, et cetera. And so all this stuff is, is, is definitely coming. It's raising concerns about technological unemployment, though I think they're unfounded, um, though there are whole categories of jobs that, that will be going away um, for sure. Um, and some of them may, you know, it's going to start this decade. Truck drivers, for example, will be replaced by autonomous trucks. Um, and this is the largest employer in America. Now, it'll take about 20 years for the entire transition to happen. So we have we have some time, but real concern. Right, right. right. There is going to be uh, some displacement from people in jobs, but hopefully with all the opportunities for education, we'll re-educate them and put them other places. Um, and I want to kind of wrap our interview up here with um, this explosion in VR. Um, there were about 22 million users, you said, in 2017. Today, there's 35 million users in 2018, and it's growing kind of exponentially. And uh, it, you expect this market to reach $35 billion um, this year. What is happening and how is VR affecting everything from entertainment markets to healthcare markets. I mean, I see it out there. I don't have any VR glasses myself or goggles, I should say, but I have known about this for probably the last, you know, nine or 10 years. It's just, I haven't chosen to participate yet. So VR and AR, augmented reality and virtual reality, um, I think augmented reality uh, we'll see really moving out this year um, first, and then VR is, is, is slowly starting to catch up. And it's, you know, it's an unlimited funhouse. It's, you know, an entire, entirely new kinds of entertainment that we already see this. You can now go see Hollywood movies and then go to Hollywood VR experiences where you can go live inside the movie you just saw in the theater. Um, so we're already seeing it in entertainment. Uh, we're already seeing seeing uh, it uh, in science for 
sure care is coming. It's coming everywhere. And it shifts, you know, like everything else. It shifts everything else. And But the thing I love about VR that I always like to point out, and it goes right back to the sort of the jobs question. So one of VR is good. What will drive VR forward are a kind of like it's a perfect confluence of a, of a bunch of different things. One of which is every time a technology goes exponential, we find essentially an internet sized opportunity inside. And again, job displacement is an issue. Internet was an example, but the internet created 2.6 jobs for everyone and extinguished. So it's a net positive by a long shot. We think all these things will. And virtual reality is cool because we learned, as you said, VR has been around for a while. We learned back in the 90s when Philip Rosedale rolled out Second Life for the first time, one of the first virtual a woman named Nancy Chung made over a million. So we, the first millionaire who earned her money entirely in virtual reality, that happened almost 20 years ago. So there is an absolute market there. Um, and uh, so jobs will be in VR, and that's a really big, big, big driver that'll be driving the shift forward. Yeah, it's uh, it's truly a space which, like you said, the $35 billion, but growing stronger. And we see new companies coming out all the time that are uh, really getting engaged in that market. And Stephen, I could speak with you forever because I only got through a very small portion, but um like to invite you to be back on. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about CRISPR and TurboBoost 3D printing and some of these other things which are truly having tremendous effects. But I do want to encourage my listeners to go to your website. You can go to the books website. Uh, we will put a link to that on our blog as well. Go to Stephen's website as well. It's uh, www.stephencotler.com. Dot com. There you can learn about all of his books. You can also learn about the Flow Research Collective, which he's talked about, the trainings, the opportunity for you to get involved. You can schedule a free consult there as well um, and speak with some of the folks uh, at the Flow Research Collective about what's being offered. What is on the Flow uh, Research Collective, just to kind of wrap things up here, what are you offering to people out there today that are interested in getting involved in that as far as training is concerned? Okay. So uh, let me back up. Big picture, we're a research and training organization. On the research side, we have partnerships with USC, UCLA, Imperial College London, uh, Deloitte, uh, and we study the neurobiology of peak performance. Right, what's going on in the brain and the body when we're performing at our best. And we use that information to figure out how to train up peak performance, and then we teach it to people uh, on the training side of the business. And we work with everybody from kind of the U.S. Special Forces through executives and Fortune 100 companies through the general public. And we do this in one of two ways. We have live trainings or we have digital trainings. Uh, both In both cases, uh, in the live training, you go, you come, you come, uh, hang out for two, three days, and then you go through an eight week digital class. And, uh, in the digital version, it's, uh, you start with a digital class, but you go through the class with a PhD psychologist as your coach. Wow. And, and, bo- and both have been, uh, incredibly effective. 
uh, we're, we're getting, we, we work on flow, right? The peak performance state known as flow. And we, we, we measure pre and post and we're extremely good at what we, what we do. Um, we've been getting really re- great results for people and it's been a lot and of fun. All they have to do is go to the, uh, your website and they can learn more about that. Yeah. And- so it's even cooler than that. Cause what we do is we go to the website. If you go to flow research collective forward slash flow blocker, F L O blocker, B L O C R. It's a free diagnostic. Basically will analyze your life and say, Hey, you know, you want more peak performance. This is the main thing standing in the way of your progress. And if you want, you can then get on the phone with somebody on my staff who will break that down for you and talk to you about what that means and basically coach you up. And if it turns out that a class is right for you and that's, that's where you want to go next, cool. And if not, we've got free materials all over the place. Great opportunity for my listeners to get involved and a great way for them to get involved. I'm going to encourage them to go out and buy the book. We're going to put a link to it, to Amazon. The future is faster than you think. We've been on with Stephen Kotler, and Stephen uh, and Peter wrote a fascinating book here. I highly recommend all my listeners go there, go to the websites. Thanks so much, Stephen, for being on and spending a few minutes with our listeners, educating them about um, what's happening, going to be happening in the future, what's happening now, and how to help themselves actually really prepare. This book has lots of examples. It's well-researched. Uh, as always, you write a tremendous book, and I appreciate you having you on the show. Greg, thank you so much, and I and I, I really just want to like pause and thank you for you've been incredibly supportive of, of all the books, all the flow research, all the flow work for a very long time now, and and I appreciate you. So thank you for everything you do as well. Namaste, my friend.